Glory to Jesus Christ, everybody. Good evening and welcome to our last installment and a very fitting end, I would say, to this series, Eastern Catholic Theology in Action. I want to thank all of you who have tuned in throughout, as well as those who are joining us for the first time. Our series has gone deep into the past to represent the theological riches of the Christian East. We've been introduced to the mysteries through the liturgical tradition of the church by Deacon Daniel Galadza. Dr. Robin Darling Young offered an elegant reflection on Christ as philanthropos, the lover of mankind. We were invited into the treasure house of Syriac theological poetry by Dr. Andrew Hayes and Dr. Aaron Walsh. Father Alexander Lashchuk changed our view from the past to look around at the Eastern churches from a global perspective. He explored the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and concerns for the communities of Eastern Catholics worldwide, offering both realism and reasons for hope. While our presenters have looked to the past and to the present, our speaker this evening gives us a way forward. Metropolitan Boris Gudziak has spent his life committed to Catholic education. After completing studies in Rome and a doctorate at Harvard, he helped to found Ukrainian Catholic University in Lviv, the only Catholic university between Poland and Japan. The university's mission is quite simple, to bring the Christian humanist vision of the Catholic university to Ukraine to heal the wounds inflicted by Soviet oppression. Gudziak was rector of the Ukrainian Catholic University until 2012 and became president upon his Episcopal ordination. After seven years as ordinary for Ukrainian Catholics in France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, and Switzerland, he was named Metropolitan Archbishop of the Ukrainian Catholic Archeparchy of Philadelphia in 2019. From the depths of his experience living between continents, Eastern and Western Europe, the academy and pastoral life, Metropolitan Boris will offer a pastoral perspective on the Eastern Catholic theological voice and its role in communicating the gospel today and in the 21st century. I remind you that there will be a question and answer session at the conclusion of Metropolitan Boris's talk. You may put your question in the queue at any time by clicking on the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. So here to speak with us today with the title, Quo Vadis, The Direction of Eastern Catholic Theology, a Pastoral Perspective for the 21st Century, I now invite Metropolitan Boris to unmute himself and turn on his screen as he presents for us tonight. Thank you, uh, dear Father Andrew. Uh, thank you for your warm words and for the work, all the work you've done uh, to put together the series. And I'm very grateful to uh, Thomas Lovergold and Michael the Chevalier, the leaders of the Lumen Christi Institute for your invitation uh, and for all of the wonderful work that you do. I love this um, series title. I find it very evocative, Eastern Catholic Theology in Action. And in my presentation, I will be guided uh, by this title. My presentation will not be primarily theoretical or abstract. Being a historian, my inclination is to see things in their living narrative, more so than through philosophical or speculative categories. I suppose I should admit that 
basically, I cannot do much better than that. Uh, since I do not pretend to foresee, I will say little about where Eastern Catholic theology will go in the 21st century. However, I will try to say something about how I think theology can and should be done. It needs the academy, but it is not real theology if it is merely academy, uh, merely academic. This will respond to the title that was assigned to me this evening. The presentation will have an incarnate perspective. I hope that that responds to the expectations created by the word pastoral, a pastoral perspective in the 21st century. I propose today that we have a conversation. Uh, I really uh, hope that uh, I can also listen. Just maybe, you know, I'll finish before my allotted time, uh, which will allow for more of this interchange. Because I believe that theology is first and foremost listening, an attitude and a posture, in fact, a life of openness to God in his word, will, style, uh, that I believe uh, theology is fundamentally relational. Thus, theology is and happens in relationship. In this sense, Christian theology is Trinitarian, flowing out of the relationship of the divine persons of the most holy trinity. And I really implore God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to bless us today in our encounter and in our reflections. Considering the above enunciated points, it will be natural if I will speak on based on experience, illustrating certain principles based on case studies in which I have been involved. What I share with you is the result of a lengthy personal evolution. Now, it's always good to define the categories which are being used in a certain proposal. For our purposes, allow me to propose that Eastern Catholic theology is what Eastern Catholics live. It can hardly be what is merely in a book about Eastern Catholics. It is not in the end what someone thinks Eastern Catholic theology should be. Although what an academic theologian thinks and effectively argues demonstrates and incarnates regarding what theology should be, can and often should be a stimulus beacon, a precedent that then is followed by a theological current. That of course takes time. In a modernity, we had a cultural paradigm that sought a certain norm. Modernity with its rational penchant for hierarchies, for categorizations, uh, likes to objectify. And this pertained to theology. In history for positivists, uh, the famous dictum of Ranke was history is wie es eigentlich gewesen war, what it was. 
It's objective. It's that. Theology was also in search of objective norms. We can uh, refer to many, many examples. For example, the search for the historical Jesus and the whole historical critical method that dominated so much of uh, the 20th century in theology. At the end of modernity, which for our purposes here, again, defining, roughly coincides with my youth, uh, the second half of the 20th century, when the decades before and after the Second Vatican Council, I think Eastern Catholics started to move theologically. They started to become more free, assertive, and creative. The council was an important watershed for all of Catholicism. It stimulated a more active, concerted quest among Eastern Catholics for their theology. For some Eastern Catholics, the norm had been, the norm, the modern norm, had been what the rest of the big Latin world was doing. For others, the criteria were orthodox expressions and priorities. Now, I am not competent and will not give a survey of the state of theological reflection in the Eastern Catholic churches. In the audience are experts, uh, representatives of many Eastern Catholic churches who better than I can describe how theology was conceived in recent decades in their respective churches. And examples of that kind of theologizing uh, actually uh, were presented in this uh, wonderful series. Now, my sense is that along with a certain awakening and embarking on a creative vital theological quest in many Eastern Catholic communities, the ecclesial life was not fully reflected in an articulated conceptually ordered theology. Uh, I'm sad to say that in fact, critical reflection was often frowned upon and inhibited. For example, in the American Ukrainian Catholic Church in the last 50 years, the number of academically prepared theologians with doctorates in theology is but a handful. Those who know better, uh, please correct me, but according to my calculations, there were about seven or eight and four of them completed studies in the United States. Uh, three received their doctorates uh, in Rome. Uh, this, is, this is from uh, a community that numbered hundreds of thousands and we're speaking about at least two, if not three generations. The present modest state of Eastern Catholic academic theological institutions reflects the fact that for the church leadership and much of the rank and file church members, a critical reflected articulation of theology is not a high priority. But there are great enthusiasts and especially those who have put together and participated in this series. This was what I've um, shared with you now in these introductory words is 
sums up some of the thoughts and experiences that I had uh, as a young man, as a student, as a Christian who at the age of 15 felt a vocation to the priesthood in the mid 70s uh, at a time when vocations seemed to be very few. I think I'm the only priest born in 1960 out of our four eparchies born in the United States. Uh, and what I want to share with you now is basically uh, a life's pilgrimage in search of categories, expressions, words, postures, silences to express God's love, to express what is God, God's love for us and our relationship with God. I had the rather unique privilege uh, to be put in a situation where different institutions had to be created. As uh, I think most of you know, uh, but some are too young to remember, the Ukrainian Catholic Church was illegal from 1945 to 1989, completely illegal. In 1945, all of its bishops and a large part of its clergy uh, were arrested, tried, sent to Siberian labor camps, and all of its institutions were closed. For two and a half generations, or at least two and a half generations, had uh, a predominantly clandestine experience of religious life. As the church, the Ukrainian Greco-Catholic church emerged out of the underground, having been stripped of all of its uh, institutions for almost a half a century, there was a need to establish forms and structures for critical reflection upon life with God. Theological institutions to train priests, religious, laity, that wanted to share their life of God with others, to serve the church, to become missionary apostles. And in 1992, uh, the head of our church asked me, uh, a layman, I was 31 years old, to work on a project to revive a theological academy that had first been closed by the Soviets in 1939. In this mandate, was an explicit request to develop the academy in such a way that uh, this theological school would become the cornerstone of a university. 
And in this process, for our group, it became very clear that we have a unique opportunity in history because we had nothing. There was no building, no land, no teachers, no theologians in the country. Ukraine had at that time a population of 52 million, about 4 million Eastern Catholics. And there was not a single citizen of the country that had a bona fide university degree in theology. Uh, worse still, or better yet, uh, there was a lack of uh, a theological language. The Ukrainian language had been stunted in its theological development. Uh, the language was repressed in many ways throughout uh, the totalitarian century. And of course, any kind of theological expression or publication was virtually impossible in the homeland. But there's a wonderful thing when you don't have nothing. When you don't have not anything, you have very little to lose. And there's great freedom. And so what I'm sharing with you regarding Eastern Catholic theology is, in effect, Eastern Catholic theology in action. Quo vadis was our question almost 30 years ago. Where to go forward? And we tried as best as we could to pose these questions and prayerfully ask the Lord for guidance in formulating the answers. I will share with you now uh, five cases of vital theologizing, a theology that is in one sense, very academic because many, a number of these cases are connected with the creation of academic units or entire institutions. But what we normally term as academic uh, was not the limits of this endeavor. I referred to the church that was under in the underground. Anybody that was trying to critically, creatively, openly analyze, delve into life with God, the spiritual life, the life of the church in Ukraine in the 1990s could not but begin with an awareness of the underground experience. It was radical. It was ultimate. Hundreds of thousands of Greek Catholics repressed by a communist regime. Hundreds of thousands, probably 400,000 Eastern Catholics were deported to Siberia some for religious reasons, some for political reasons, some for cultural reasons. A tenth of the Eastern Catholic population. 
As I mentioned, the bishops and clergy arrested, killed those that survived in the underground. Their life with God was a theology. Their life of God was a very proximate imitation of Christ. Their life with God and faithfulness to the church was in our eyes a culminating feat of the 20th century. The greatest challenge I think of the 20th century was that presented by Soviet and other ideological totalitarianism. In fact, in the 20th century and into the 21st, about 2 billion people between Estonia and Albania on the east, on the west, and China, Vietnam, North Korea on the east, bear, bore, bear the cross of totalitarian repression. These people in the underground were willing to give their life for Christ, for the church, for their brothers and sisters. And it became clear to us that this is a theology. This is a theological proposition. In fact, it is a theological feat. These martyrs and witnesses, these uh, incredible heroes, were simple people who had not registered this experience in diaries or publications. That was impossible. So our theologizing began with an oral history project of listening. Listening to God as he speaks through his martyrs and confessors of the faith. The project is still ongoing. Uh, About two and a half thousand people have been interviewed. It's 150,000 pages of transcriptions. That's about 500 volumes of uh, 300 pages each. And many, many artifacts, icons made in Siberian labor camps with thread taken from Soviet propaganda banners. The reds, the oranges, the different colors little thimbles that served as chalices, and other sundry uh, mementos that could be preserved from the labor camps, from the clandestine services, from the monasteries and seminaries in which going back to medieval practice, prayer books and theological manuals were copied by hand. 
Eastern Catholic theology going forward cannot but listen to God as he speaks through his martyrs. Many of the Eastern Catholic churches lived under communist repression and shared this experience. Today, many Eastern Catholic churches in the Middle East and North Africa also suffer persecution. And it is those who suffer and suffer for Christ who can speak most clearly, maybe only through their actions, through their demeanor, through their posture, through their silence. They can speak most clearly, share most eloquently words about God, theology. As this project developed, it constituted the heart of what became the Institute of Church History, which in turn became the cornerstone of the second case. And that was the revived New Theological Academy, which had been flourishing in the 1930s, but was closed down by the Soviets in 1939. In this effort to revive academic theology, a school of study, we had a unique opportunity. In Lviv and in other seminaries, the Lviv Seminary was to be served by this uh, theological academy. At that time, in the early and mid-1990s, there were four candidates for every opening in the seminary. At least on paper, one of the seminaries had 1,400 seminarians. The Lviv Seminary had about 400. It was a kairos. And as we were creating a program for seminarians in theology and reviving an academy that before the war had only diocesan seminarians as students, no lay men or women, not even religious, uh, we again had a unique opportunity to rethink the past legacy and amplify it for the new times. We also were dealing with these enthusiasts who wanted to live with God, who had no preconceived notions of what academic theology was, and so had no prejudices. At this point, having already decided that our theology will include listening to God as he speaks through his martyrs, in this second case, the creation of a theological faculty, the decision was made to make a primary accent on listening 
to the sources that register God's works, words, and deeds. To go to the sources, ad fontes, especially to scripture, the divine liturgies, and that which is reflected in the experience of life with God among the first Christians, the fathers and mothers of the church. This approach entailed uh, some practical decisions, something that um, I knew was not possible in any undergraduate program in theology uh, in the Western world. But in Ukraine, as I said, nobody had preconceived notions and there was incredible enthusiasm. So whatever was determined in the proposal would be accepted. If we're going to the sources, we need to have some basic, simple, maybe not simple, uh, complicated, but uh, basic instruments. And this is languages. And so every student who was entering this school committed to spending three years of studying Greek, two years of studying Latin, mastering English to the degree to be able to take classes in English during the third year. In the fourth and fifth year of studies, each student was to choose another Western European language, either French, German, or Italian. And of course, the sacred language historically for Ukrainian Catholics would also be learned, Church Slavonic. Today, there's been slippage because there's uh, more preconceived notions. And students at this school know that uh, no other school in the world has that kind of requirement in terms of languages. But the result of that early effort in that exceptional cohort of enthusiasts was that today, the Ukrainian Catholic Church in Ukraine has a modest but important group of biblical, liturgical, and patristic scholars who help the whole church listen to God as he is spoken in tradition. I believe that going to the sources is essential. And the future of Eastern Catholic theology, precisely for pastoral reasons, needs to be in a living connection with those who have helped us understand who God is for the human race. The third case is the university that was being built on the cornerstone of the theological faculty. We had quite a bit of time. And Ukraine has 
some 200 universities. There's no need for just the 200 first. Many aspects of the school, its future development, were viewed and reviewed through a theological prism. A living theological prism. A prism that connected the studies, the life of the community with the life of the church and experience of God's presence among us. It also sought to respond to the challenges of this particular society. The endemic fear in all post-totalitarian populations. If a system kills systematically, every member of that society embraced and engulfed by that terror, that violence, every member develops a reflex against the system, against the other, because the other is dangerous. And that fear then goes deep into the DNA. Our question in this university was how to foster trust, how to help people trust the other, God and neighbor, how to love. And it was really a theological decision to invite into the heart of this ambitious school, which could select one out of four, and today it is one out of 10 applicants, a school that today has by far the highest SAT scores of incoming students uh, in the whole country. This school with certain academic ambitions that it has a competitive admission system chose to remedy the dangers of com competition by inviting into its very heart, into its identity, those who don't have academic intellectual capacity, our mentally handicapped friends, inspired by the world of L'Arche, first presented to our community by Father Henry Nowen, a decision was made in the early and mid 90s to make our friends with special needs who have incredibly special gifts, tutors of human relations, those who help us see God in each other, those who help us trust. This insight or this, this desire was a theological one. It had God at its, at its center. It had 
a message from God regarding the dignity of every human being at its very heart. And this message was emblazoned on this university. The fourth case uh, is a continuation of this development. At first, the university had very modest temporary premises, but over the decades it developed and there was a question of how to build, what to build. A theological reflection was fostered regarding the architecture. The spaces of buildings, the spaces in buildings, the spaces in between buildings, the articulations of walls and openings, the windows, the embracing arches, living, work, recreational space, space to play. I invite you to look at the website of the Ukrainian Catholic University. And if you study some of the buildings, you will see, it's hard to do it during a brief presentation to show you, but you will see that the buildings speak to each other. They open to each other and they invite those who live, work, study, visit these building, in these buildings to be open and to encounter each other. A fundamentally Trinitarian principle was pursued by this campus. A principle of interpersonal relationship. And finally, I share with you a fifth case. The case of a diocese. In 2012, as Father Andrew shared, I was asked to serve as bishop. I went somewhat reluctantly to Paris. I loved this university. I love this way of doing theology, living theology, praying theology, with the martyrs and the marginalized, with the opportunity to create a little civilization of love of God and love of neighbor. It was difficult to go. But in France, where in Paris, Ukrainian Catholic eparchy has its seat, there was again a unique opportunity, a very humble Episcopal structure called to serve in five countries. But one with only nine able-bodied priests. I don't know if you imagine how big that territory can be. Um, France is the size of Texas. And imagine four other countries, one diocese. 
with a budget of 35,000 years annual, at 35,000 euros annually. Theology is conditioned by very concrete things. Theology is an incarnational. And again, there was a situation where, you know, there wasn't much to lose. At the same time, the immigrants were, began to really flood in. The economic hardships of the 90s and 2000s were followed by the war in Ukraine, the invasion of Russia that occurred at the beginning of 2014. And some 3 million immigrants from Ukraine in which in that population in which the Greek Catholics were overrepresented. So if they constitute eight to 10% in Ukraine, uh, they were probably at least 30 or 40% in this cohort. 3 million immigrants ended up in the European Union. And there was a call to develop the diocese, the eparchy to develop new ministries, to help people live with God and live with each other. We had the opportunity to rethink what a diocese is. What is an Eastern Catholic bishop in Paris, an alpha city with a population in the metropolitan area of about 10 million. What is this little, tiny, poor community of largely undocumented laborers? What is its identity and what it is, is its gospel mission? I asked myself. I tell you, at first, uh, I asked... Uh, with emotions bordering on despair. I didn't know. I didn't know who we were and how we could go forward. But we began what was a theological pilgrimage, a reflection. What is God saying to us in these circumstances? We didn't have much other than each other. We had six chapels in five countries. Thankfully, our very generous and hospitable Roman Catholic brothers and sisters opened up their churches for our services throughout these five countries. Our community grew. Within three years, we had 15 more priests. So we went from nine to 24 priests. And we made a conscious decision to treat our church as the living body of Christ, which entails a personal encounter. We started traveling to each other. We had a theology of the Eucharist and the agape. We had a synodal way of life. It was a synodality in action. There's actually a nice movie about it, which I recommend to you. 
on the website of the Paris Eparchy. Synodality in action, how people share their life in Christ, listening to each other, hearing how God speaks to me through my brother and sister. I believe that each of these cases represent vital, creative, and critical examples of theological reflection. An Eastern Catholic theology in action. I thank God and I thank all of my brothers and sisters with whom I had the privilege to walk in this pilgrimage, in this theological trip through many countries, through many cultural contexts, in which Eastern Catholics sought to live with God, interpreting God's signs as they went forward in life. I invite all of you to take a look at uh, the university, listen to how God speaks to the martyrs. Let the most marginalized, those who can be most ostracized in a theological academic community, those who don't have the intellectual capacity, I invite all of us to listen to how God speaks to us, to listen, to read God's word, theology, in the community of the church, in the synodality that His Holiness Pope Francis calls us to. We live in a time that is tumultuous. We have great losses. We have shame. The Lord is purifying us. He's calling us to a simplicity, to the essential. He's calling us to be courageous in our witness. He's calling us to a living theology a theology of joy and a theology of peace. My hope that is that the Eastern Catholic churches can go forward in a pastoral way, a way of mutual accompaniment into this 21st century. It is our time and it is the kairos of our salvation. I thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much, Metropolitan Buddhist. Um, it was just a real fascinating uh, Cook's tour through this uniquely blessed life that you were uh, able to lead with the grace of God. Uh, we have time for questions. I remind you that uh, you can ask a question by uh, prompting at the bottom of the Q&A screen here. Uh, some have already done so. 
And two related questions, uh, Metropolitan. You spoke uh, of your time at the Lviv Theological Academy as this unique time to dive ad fontest into the sources, but as well to dive uh, into the experience of the Church of the Martyrs. So two people asked uh, if you could maybe give further reflection on how the church can live the spirituality of the church fathers in the modern world, and maybe even more focused, what can a theology based on the experience of the catacomb church say to generations in North America, uh, whose faith is not threatened right now by the hostility of an atheistic state, but by the skepticism and indifference of a materialistic society? Let me start from uh, the, the second part of it. Uh, uh, what can we learn from the Church of the Martyrs? Uh, I have kind of a, you know, many, many possible answers to that. Uh, it's over a quarter of century where I've been involved in, in studying this experience and actually getting to know the people that lived this experience. Many of them, of course, have passed away over the years. Uh, one fundamental insight that is most relevant to our times, our times of sadness, our times of uh, certain disarray, uh, times, our uh, times when people in the church are often discouraged, is the following. Uh, the Church of the Martyrs uh, showed to me that there is no situation in which one cannot be open to God's presence. There is no circumstance in which one cannot live a spiritual life. We sometimes might think, wow, in this, you know, floating on this sea of contemporary pop culture, getting bombarded by all, you know, the information, uh, all the impulses, all the passions, uh, all the anger, the, the screaming. Uh, it's impossible to live. Well, it can be worse. And in worse circumstances, people have lived a focused spiritual life. It gives great hope. And I think the fathers and mothers of the church, they call us back uh, to certain methods that are essential for this life. And that is disciplines. Uh, a discipline in which things are integrated, where uh, our whole life is guided by our encounter with Christ. Our whole life is liturgical. Our liturgy is our service to God, which flows into our, our service uh, to each other. Uh, it was that time of early Christianity was very similar uh, typologically to ours. There was a certain globalization being experienced in the Roman Empire. Uh, there, there was a violence in the world. 
There was a question of the uh, dignity of women. There was uh, a wanton attitude uh, towards sexual relations. And uh, there was a call to develop a Christian synthesis of, um, of doctrine explaining the Christian way of life. We, need, we are called to that kind of synthesis today. And I think uh, we can be inspired and encouraged by the fathers and the martyrs in our contemporary challenges. Thank you. Um, very good. Moving on to uh, Father Rihori Lozinski is writing from Connecticut, and he, he thanks you, Your Grace, for this brief but rich summary of the birth and development of the Ukrainian Catholic University. And probably the question that many have is, what would be a fruitful model, uh, as you see uh, here, for pastoral direction for the reality in North America? What would be in a model to incarnate in our smaller diaspora reality as, for example, as a Ukrainian, Melkite, Ruthenian, Byzantine, or any other Eastern Catholic parish? Uh, I think uh, uh, the university is, is, you know, has a very specific uh, goal and mission, uh, and it is in a particular situation which is quite different from our uh, pastoral situation in, in the Eastern Catholic communities throughout the United States or North America. But I think that uh, the experience of the Paris Eparchy is um, something that um, uh, can, can uh, give insight. Uh, France, Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg, Switzerland are among the most secularized countries in the world. Uh, these are countries that uh, have challenges with immigrants, uh, with uh, unemployment of young people, uh, many social problems that are similar uh, to American ones. And uh, this tiny eparchy uh, grew, uh, developed, it uh, has just started uh, kind of its outreach from the ethnic ghetto. Uh, it's very challenged because there are six official languages in these five countries. And when we did gather, gather synodally, uh, we used French, English, and Ukrainian as the official languages. But the 80 people at a synod during coffee break would use 10 languages, uh, excuse me, eight languages, French, English, and Ukrainian, Dutch, German, Italian, uh, Polish and Russian. And uh, these difficulties were overcome. I know in our Ukrainian Catholic Church and in our eparchy, arch eparchy, there's a challenge between the Ukrainian, uh, you know, bridging, bridging uh, the communities that are Ukrainian speaking and English speaking. But of course, the, the big challenge is for us to open ourselves out to those that uh, were not born in, in the tribe. And um, here, here, I think uh, the entire future is ahead of us. In other words, we're just beginning.
Yeah. Um, Teresa Zollner, uh, since, you know, speaking about the parish uh, experiences you did, um, kind of focuses a question more uh, curiously on, given the paucity of Eastern Catholic academia in throughout North America, um, often depending on mainstream academic institutions to higher interests, which doesn't usually happen. Uh, how, and furthermore, with the institutions that we do have not necessarily um, working in tight collaboration, could you maybe give us some ideas or triage some better ways to develop or connect or bring scholars together more to do this activity? That's, that's uh, one of my uh, initial questions. Uh, during the first week of my service here after the enthronement, uh, we had a conference at Catholic University the goal of which was to bring Eastern Catholic theologians and not only Eastern Catholic theologians together. It's not an easy task. Um, we, we have our community and personal particularisms. Uh, I think uh, our communities bear transgenerational trauma which makes it difficult not only for theologians maybe to work together, but for uh, different segments within each Eastern Catholic Church to really work together and for the Eastern Catholic Churches uh, as, as uh, you know, uh, a minority in, in, in the Catholic community in the US to come together. I don't have I don't have uh, an answer, but I wonder if not things like this uh, Lumen Christi Institute and its uh, and the series that you have organized on Eastern Catholic theology in action. I wonder if these are not precedent setting. Uh, before, I think many were at a distance and felt in isolation. You are bringing them together. I hope your generation will, um, will set uh, new precedents uh, in this cooperation. And if I can help, uh, I am most willing to do so. Thank you very much for that. Um, yeah, one of the most beautiful things, if I could just comment on that, is to, uh, to see and experience um, the work that people are doing, uh, not just for uh, the sake of a career, but really to communicate the gospel because they found the pearl of great price in this tradition and are doing their hardest in the fields of liturgy, uh, patristics, uh, and even canon law. We had a fantastic priest and they were able to, uh, to show us what struck them with beauty, uh, which was really the beautiful one. Um, so, but bringing that uh, to focus, we actually have somebody joining us from uh, uh, Puerto Rico, uh, Monk Maximus uh, Macias. He asks what role maybe the Eastern Catholic churches and maybe even the Ukrainian Catholic church in particular can play in Latin America. Uh, there are many Latin Catholics attracted to Eastern Christianity, um, not having options to convert to Eastern Orthodoxy. And uh, my impression is that uh, 
there's not necessarily as cultivated an interest there is maybe in South America. Um, but even so, in and amongst um, the Hispanic population in the United States, um, is that a population perspective you can speak to, Pastorly? I have uh, almost no experience uh, on that front. I've uh, been in Brazil a couple of times, uh, three times actually, I think, uh, and in um, in Argentina uh, once, once in Mexico as a seven-year-old. Um, and I'm only discovering uh, what is the, the rich phenomenon of Latin Americans in the United States. Uh, I, think, I think the Eastern ethos, Eastern liturgy, it's um, emphasis on image and symbol is something that many non-Western uh, populations uh, can be, uh, can, it, these things can speak to them. I know that there is uh, a Ukrainian Catholic parish in Arizona that has started services in Spanish. Um, Father Hugo Sotus, who uh, comes from Argentina is uh, celebrating in Spanish. Um, and uh, I think uh, if, if we could use many languages in the Parisaparchy, uh, maybe you know we shouldn't stop, for example, on Ukrainian and English, but uh, try to move in the direction of Spanish as well. But uh, Father Maximus, I I hope you keep uh, praying and pushing. Um, two related questions, uh, Metropolitan Buddhists, about um, sort of the building blocks. You know, you you gave these really great examples, uh, Father Jack Custer frames it this way, and then I'll putting it together with uh, Julian Haida, talks about, you know, in your building of Ukrainian Catholic University in the Paris eparchy, you, what were the certain foundational elements that remained constant? Like the, the tradition, big T, as it's described, lived out on a practical level. And then Julian, he actually kind of pushes this a little bit further, you know, then taking from these building blocks, I guess, what can we do in, North America to make sure that these are these constants um, between communities, uh, especially with such fast pace uh, inter-country migration that we have in the United States. Um, you can have an Eastern Catholic church uh, that with the whole uh, series of services, perspectives, theological approaches, pastoral approaches, and uh, move to another country, move to another state and have, you know, precisely something different. So what are these building blocks or elements of tradition that you found helpful and constant in your building that we can move forward? I think what was most fruitful in all of these uh, five cases uh, is what I think is at the heart of uh, God's proposal to us. Uh, and it's the most important thing in our tradition. And that is uh, a, a desire, a quest to live life in a loving interpersonal way. Uh, we can have, you know, the most beautiful icons and 
you know, the best translations of the fathers. And, uh, you know, we can know a lot of scripture by heart. But what really converts people is love. And uh, one instrument for that love in these projects was a lot of listening, a lot of listening. Uh, we, we went through, in all of the cases, a school of listening, even with the architecture. There was a listening conversation, encounter, uh, personal meeting, an attention to the human person, concrete person, the one in front of you. Maybe, maybe you know, the poor person, the marginalized person. And uh, that, is, that is the most important thing in all of these uh, uh, cases. And of course, it is Trinitarian. It is, uh, it is based in a belief that we're created in God's image and likeness is, is persons. And we're called to love God and our, love our neighbor. Uh, and that the outflowing of the personal love is the whole economy of our salvation. Uh, the son uh, comes and becomes one of us to share the love of the Father in the Holy Spirit. And uh, our, our Christian life, whether it's in a theological school or whether it's in a diocese or a parish or in a family, in the end has that basic fundamental criteria. Are we loving each other? Are we inspired by that divine love between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And is that what our church is all about? I've visited theological faculties where people hate each other. You know, you can have all the publications you want, you know, and all the citations and all the libraries, but if theology is not bringing you to love the other person, the person right there. Well, I think it's, it's you know, a substandard theology. It's not really theology. And I think there needs to be, and because, you know, some of the, uh, I've, you know, some of my encounters with theological units have been the most arid, you know, that's, that's some of the most arid territory that I ever stepped on. Um, and that will not evangelize an ant. And I think, I think uh, the Holy Father, Pope Francis is speaking about this. You know, he's, he's forcing us to reconsider everything. Uh, according to a basic criterion. And that's supposed to be our theology. And we consciously try to do that. In, 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 for example, in the Ukrainian Catholic University, uh, the incoming students are asked to try to master in their five years of study, four years of study, uh, the disciplines encapsulated in two words, 
Evharisto, thank you, and I'm sorry. Gratitude and compunction, repentance, conversion. I'm not saying that, you know, everybody in the university is going around, uh, uh, you know, mumbling these words, but that, that is a proposal that is made. And I think, I think that is the basic proposal that our communities need to make. The rest is in God's hands, you know, the numbers, the structures, the money, the pierogies. Well, pierogies are in the hands of the pinchers, but um, uh, I, need, I think we need to step back and really ask, what is it all about? What is theology? What is the church? What is the point? Yeah, I think, uh, I think that question uh, gives us the right kind of pause to, to meditate on and go forward. Uh, I really want to thank you, uh, Metropolitan Boris, uh, for this, this really lively, uh, both presenting your experience and then bringing that to bear uh, on our contemporary situation here, but for our uh, over almost 300 listeners that we had tonight and viewers. Uh, so I invite maybe uh, Michael Le Chevalier to come and uh, lead us out. Well, um, on behalf of all of our viewers and all of our um, organizing partners here, um, thank you, Metropolitan um, Boris. This was a, a moving presentation, as was clear from all of the, the questions and responses that didn't get read out. Um, and I think very touching for all of us. So um, please come back again, because <laughs> uh, this, this was very fruitful for all of us. Um, and I also thank you, um, Father Andrew, for um, moderating tonight's conversation and also for helping um, inspire this or helping to launch this series and organize it and bring it together. Our time here uh, in conversation comes to an end together, but the conversation won't necessarily have to come to an end. Um, it's exciting to announce that uh, Father Andrew has actually managed to pull together many of the presentations that were, were presented here and many additional ones into uh, future texts that will be published. So um, congratulations to you, Father Andrew. I know that it's not yet uh, in the binding, um, so, so we won't jinx it. I'll be knocking on lots of wood for you, but, uh, um, and there'll be more work to come um, from the Lumen Christi Institute um, as we work to continue to explore um, the depths of the um, Eastern Christian tradition and um, make that available to all throughout the church. So finally, once more, um, thank you, Metropolitan Boris, and thank you, Father Andrew, and thank you all for joining us tonight. And we look forward to when we can welcome you back to the Lumen Christi Institute. Have a wonderful evening.